Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Please turn to page 800. So this week's Parsha is the Parsha of Shlach. Moshe sends 12 spies into the land of Israel to bring back a report. And they come back. And they give the following report. Bottom of the page, Pasuk number 27. They come back and they say to Moshe, We went to the land that you told us to go to. Next page, 802. And yes, it is true. It is flowing with milk and honey. Milk and, honey. and these are its fruits. They brought back uh, the fruits from Israel. Then, top of the page, 802, Pasuk 28. However, the people there are very strong. And they dwell in fortified cities. And um, we're not going to be able to. We're not going to be able to do this. Pasuk number thirty. Kalev tries to quiet the people because Kalev and Yoshua, of course, disagree with what the other ten spies they, uh, say. And they say, of course, Hashem said we're going to inherit the land. Of course we're going to inherit the land. However, verse 30, Pasuk 31, the other ones say, no. Lo nuchal We're not going to be able to take this nation. Ki They're stronger than us. It's not going to work. And that causes a hysteria among the people. And then Hashem gets very, very upset. You don't believe I'm going to, if I tell you I'm giving you the land of Israel, you don't believe I'm going to give it to you. And Hashem decrees that this generation is not worthy of coming into the land of Israel. And they have to wander a total of 40 years in the desert. And their children, the next generation, will inherit the land of Israel. A terrible, terrible thing because the spies come back and they say, they're too strong for us. The cities are too fortified. We're not going to be able to take them. Here's what's fascinating. What's fascinating is that we know the other perspective. <coughs> we know what was going on in Israel among the Canaanite nations as Israel was traveling through the desert. And we know that because that is this week's Haftorah. So if you turn please to page 1184. Page 1184 is the Haftorah for this Shabbos. And it is a narrative that takes place a few years later, but only a few years, 38 years later. At the end of the 40 years, after Moshe dies, Yehoshua takes over, and Yehoshua leads the people into Israel. Well, Yehoshua does the same thing 
send spies in advance of the Jewish people crossing in over the Yardin, the Jordan River, to enter the land of Israel, and to send spies. How are we going to come? Where are we going to go? How do we conquer? And the spies end up in the city of Yericho, Jericho, and it happens that there's a woman there, her name is Rahav, and this woman agrees to hide the spies and help them in their mission in exchange that when the Jewish people do come and they start to conquer and the first place they conquer is Yericho, Jericho, that they will save her and her family. But listen to what she says. Absolutely incredible. Near the bottom of page 1184. Well, let's start with Pusik 10. She is saying to them, we know all about you. We heard about you. That you crossed the, the, the Yamsuf when you left Egypt. Bottom line, Pasuk 11. Vanishma vayimas We heard about God taking you through the desert and we heard about everything that was happening with you. Vayimas Our hearts melted with fear. Top of the next page, 1185. It's like, we're, we're like, we have no spirit left. We're so frightened of you. Your God is the God of heaven and earth. And there's no way that we are going to be able to resist when you come. So we're just trembling in fear waiting for you to come and just take us over. So I want you to know I want to help you on the condition that when you come and you conquer everything, save me and my family. It's fascinating that the spies come back and say the people that are living there are so strong we'll never be able to conquer them but the people themselves in that land are saying oh my goodness what's happening we're never going to be able to withstand this nation coming protected by God but the king of Jericho wanted to to capture these guys yeah but he wasn't able to right right no, right. I understand. right right that's part of the narrative and the truth is that the Jewish people knew that the nations native to Israel were afraid of them, which makes it so surprising that they would have listened to the report of these spies now because earlier... They had already heard this. They heard this at a very important place. Page 378. Page 378. Right after leaving Egypt. Seven days later. And the Red Sea is split. The Yamsuf is split. And the Jewish people cross over to dry, on dry land to the other side and they're saved. And all the army of Egypt is, is drowns. And they sing a song of praise. Az Yashir Moshe, the song of praise which is incorporated into our prayer book, into our sitter. Every single day we say this prayer. 
And what do we say in the prayer? Pasuk 14. Shamu Amam Yirgazun. The nations of the world have heard what happened to us and they're afraid. Chil Achaz Yoshve Pulashas. The people who dwell in Pulashash, Pulishtim, the, the Palestinians, they're gripped with terror because we're being led by Hashem. So the Jewish people knew that the other nations were afraid of them. But somehow, these spies came back and told them this story. So how could it be this discrepancy? As a fascinating insight, it's quoted by Rashi, and it's just an amazing lesson, a very, very important lesson. And it goes like this. Turn now back to page 800. So, page 800, top of the page, Moshe sends these spies and he gives them a mission. He tells them what he wants them to do, what he wants them to look for, and what he wants them to report on when they come back. So he says to them, um, see the land, see the people there, are there a lot of people, are there a few people? Look at the land. Is it a good land? Is it not such a good land? Top of the page, page 800. Top land. Top line. Umeharim. And what are the cities like? Ashehu Yosheh Bahama. Are they cities that are not so well protected? Or are the cities fortified cities? Well, that's important information to know. If you want to go conquer a land, you want to know what the land is like, but you also want to know what the cities are like. Are they fortified? Or are they open cities? Well, okay. So the spies came back. Next page, page 802. And they said, the passage we quoted before, Eveski Azaam, these people are very, very strong. Hayoshe Barat, Fehaarim Batsuros Gadolos Ma'od, and the cities are very, very well fortified. And we're not going to be able to take it. But they made a mistake because they misinterpreted what they were looking for. Rashi explains like this. Moshe said, go look at the cities. Are they strong and fortified or are they open? They looked and they came back and they reported accurately. But they drew the wrong conclusion because if a city is fortified why am I, why are we fortified because we're afraid scared if a city is open why is it open because we're not afraid come attack our army is superior we don't need fortification 
Moshe was saying to them to see if it's fortified or open in order to, to get the message if the cities are fortified, that's a sign that it's going to be easy for us. They're afraid. But they misinterpreted what they saw. They saw the tremendous fortification and they thought that that and, and, and that is what they quoted as part of saying we're not going to be able to do it because the cities are fortified but they misunderstood. They misinterpreted what they were seeing. It's not enough to bring back a report that is factually correct. It's also important to draw the correct conclusions. And it's such an important lesson in every area of life. A person or a group or a community or any entity that is fortified is afraid. And a group that is open is confident in physical life, in emotional life, in spiritual life, in any realm. A person, who, a company that's afraid of competition or a company, I don't worry, I'm not caring about competition, it's fine. I know my product is better, I know my service is better. Same thing with shuls. <laughs> Same thing. With every entity. It's such an important lesson. I always thought that one of the differences between, for example, Bells or Satma Hasidim and Lubavitch is exactly that. That they are so afraid, in a way, they don't feel that they're, what they have is so strong that it can combat whatever, whereas Lubavitch says, no, we're not worried. You know, we're going to go out because we know what we have is so strong. Well, I, I would draw the, the distinction between a more, a more insular type of Judaism versus, for example, modern orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. Right? We're not afraid to be in the world. We're not afraid to be in universities and in the workplace. And Okay. It applies all over. But here's what's... In, okay, so that's one lesson to learn from this. But there's another lesson to learn. And that is, this is part of human nature, there are times when two people, or two groups, or two entities, two people will see the exact same thing and come to an opposite conclusion based on seeing the same thing. And you have to think about what is it that leads one person to see this fact and conclude A, and another person to see the exact same fact and conclude the opposite of A. So I want to tell you a story. It's a deep story. Now, the lesson of this story does not apply under all circumstances. But there are situations when this story does apply. And if there's a lesson that you can derive from it, and if I can derive a lesson from it that applies sometimes, then the story will be beneficial. And the story goes like this. There was once a town in Europe called Chensikov. And in Chensikov there was a rav, a rabbi, and his wife, the Rebetzin. And unfortunately, 
this couple wanted desperately to have children and they were not blessed by Hashem with children. So, they tried to do whatever they could to receive Hashem's blessing to have children. It didn't work. And finally they decided they were Hasidic Jews. They went to their Rebbe who was the cousin of Magid who was a great Hasidic Rebbe. And they said, Rebbe, they poured out their hearts. We want to have a child. Will you bless us that we should be able to have a child? And the Rebbe thought to himself and he meditated and he davened. And then he said to them, I'm very, very sorry to tell you, but the gates of heaven are closed to you for this issue of having a child. It's not going to happen. But then he said to them, even though I am not able to open those gates to heaven for you that you should be able to have a child, there's one person. And if you go to this person, he is such a tzaddik, he is such a righteous person, and he is the only person that could open the gates of heaven to you to have this child. And his name is Wolf. But they called him Black Wolf. That was his nickname. But his name was Wolf. Now this rabbi and his wife, they knew this person, Wolf. Because he was a person who was very, very frightening. A person who was mean and nasty and he looked like a monster and he and his wife lived by themselves in the forest outside of this town and no one would go to speak to him because everyone was afraid of him. But the Rebbe said, I'm telling you that in truth this man is one of the greatest tzaddikim, one of the greatest righteous of the righteous, and he is the only person who can give you a blessing for you to be able to have a baby. Okay? So if the Rebbe says to go find this fellow wolf, even if he seems like a monster, but if he says he's a tzaddik, he's a tzaddik. So we got to go. The problem is, everybody knows this fellow wolf is so mean and so nasty, he doesn't want anyone around him. He won't talk to anybody. So how do you get to get a bracha from him if he hates everybody? So the rabbi came up with a plan. And the plan was like this. I'm going to wander around in the forest near his home late on a Friday afternoon. And then I'm going to go up to his house and I'm going to say, I'm lost in the forest and Shabbos is about to start. You have to help a Jew to let him in for Shabbos? Even Wolf couldn't turn away a person for Shabbos. And then if I'm there for Shabbos, over oh, Shabbos I'll get a bracha from him. Okay. So... Friday afternoon, he sets out into the forest. It's right before Shabbos. He's wandering around in this area. He sees the house, and he hears from this house screaming, yelling and screaming. Obviously, it is Wolf's wife. I don't know her name. Don't ask me her name. But it's Wolf's wife, and she's screaming and yelling. This is Wolf. That's what we just said. He goes up to the house, this rub. He knocks on the door and then he hears 
the wife yelling at him, who's there? And whoever it is, it doesn't matter, go away. Because we don't want anybody here. So he says, I'm, I'm lost, I'm in the forest, Shabbos is about to start, what am I going to do? Please help me, a place to say. And the woman says, forget it. Because even if I would change my mind and let you in, if my husband, Wolf, comes home, he'll kill you. He'll tear you into little pieces. The Rav knows that, it, first of all, it's almost Shabbos. And second of all, it's his only chance. He says, listen, you've got to help me. Whatever it is, please, take mercy. Help me out for Shabbos. And the, and the woman says, okay, I'm going to have mercy. Here's what I'm going to do. Go into the barn with the animals. Don't open the door and don't come out and sleep with the animals and then after Shabbos leave. Oh, and, and have a very good Shabbos. Okay. Well, it's pretty scary and it doesn't seem to be going the way he expected it to go, but alright, that's what happens. A little while later, the rabbi hears noises coming from the house, yelling and screaming. The wife says, Wolf, I wasn't going to tell you, but I have to tell you, because as angry as you're going to get, you're going to get even more angry if you find out about this without me telling you, and that is, some guy came to the door and he wanted to stay here for Shabbos. And Wolf starts yelling, well, that's ridiculous because we don't want anybody here for Shabbos. So I know you got rid of him, right? She says, yeah, I, I kind of got rid of him, but not completely. He's in the barn. So Wolf starts yelling. I don't want anyone in the barn, and I don't want anyone here for Shabbos, and I'm going over there to the barn to take care of this fellow. So the rabbi hiding in the barn hears him coming and he starts to get afraid because he's going to tear him to pieces. So Wolf comes into the barn. He sees the rabbi kind of hiding in the back and says, listen, stay in the barn. I don't want to see your face. I don't want to hear you. After Shabbos, leave and be glad and grateful that I'm not just killing you right now. And he slams the door. So, then this rabbi starts to think to himself, you know, it's very strange. My rabbi told me that this person is so holy, he's the only person in the world that can open the gates of heaven to give me a bracha that we should have a child. But, he doesn't seem like such a tzaddik. I mean, he's frightening, he's scary. And it just doesn't make sense that a person who is so holy is so ugly and so frightening and so scary. And then he starts to think to himself, he's supposed to be a tzaddik. Now what is a tzaddik? A tzaddik is a person who doesn't live for themselves. It's a person who lives for others. Lives to help others. Lives to pray for others. Lives to do for others. That's what a tzaddik is. You know what's like a tzaddik? A mirror. A mirror 
is like a tzaddik, he thinks to himself. A mirror also doesn't exist for itself. A mirror exists to reflect back what stands in front of it. And then he thinks to himself, well, if a tzaddik is like a mirror, and I'm seeing this tzaddik who looks so ugly, maybe it's not the tzaddik. Maybe it's me. Maybe there's something in me that is reflecting back ugliness. Or, 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 or he that tzaddik is reflecting something in me that's ugly. That's why I'm seeing ugly. So he says to himself, you know, I have to do truth. I have to repent. Maybe there's some sins that I did. Maybe there's some corrections I have to take in my life. I have to introspect. And he sat down and he started to think to himself. He says, yeah, you know, this I should improve. And this I could correct. And this I want to be better. And after a while, he starts to feel that he's closer to Hashem. That he's back on a better path. And all of a sudden, the door to the barn opens. And Wolf is there. And he's got the biggest smile on his face. And he doesn't look the way he looked before. And he says, Rabbi, please come into my home. And I go into the house and it doesn't look the way it looked before. It looks clean. It looks nice. It's set for Shabbos. <laughs> and he goes in. And Wolf says to him, I know why you're here. You hear that I should give you a bracha that you should have a child. I want to tell you, the gates of heaven are open and I'm giving you a bracha that you and your wife should have a child. And he spent the Shabbos and he went home. He heard shortly afterwards Wolf passed away. A year later, he and his wife had a baby and they named the baby Wolf. And that's the story. What's the lesson from the story? The lesson from the story is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes what you see, when you see something ugly, it's because of something that's inside of you. It's not what's there. Two people can look at the same thing and they can have a different perception of it sometimes because the two people are different. And sometimes if everything I'm seeing is ugly and, and dark and, and, and frightening, sometimes I have to think maybe it's me that needs the adjustment. And that is one of the layers that is true about the Miraglim. There was something inside of them that caused them to see something negative when in fact the objective reality was so beautiful. So that's the story of, of Wolf. Let's go to another passage. I actually alluded to this a couple of weeks ago. 
And I said, when the time came, I was going to share this with you. The time has come, and I want to share this with you now. If you turn, please, to page 816. This is the very end of the Parsha this week. There's a very difficult narrative. Top of the page, Pasuk 32. The Torah tells us, Vayiyu b'nei Yisrael b'amidbar. The Jews were in the desert. Vayimtsu ish mekoshesh eitzim b'yom ha-Shabbos. They found a Jew gathering wood on Shabbos, violating Shabbos, which, as you know, is a terrible, terrible sin. And they discuss what should happen to him. They ask Hashem, and they carry out the punishment. That's not our subject for now. Vayimtsu ish, they found a man, Makoshish ate him, and he was gathering sticks, violating the Shabbos, doing a terrible sin. Who is the man? Well, what's it any of your business? There was a man, and he was violating Shabbos. Who is the man? Listen to the following words from the Talmud. I'm a Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva says, Zu Tzalafchad. This man's name is Tzalafchad. Now, we know a little bit about Tzalafchad. I'm going to ask you to turn, please, to page 886. Eight eighty-six, top of the page. This is a narrative from near the end of the forty years in the desert. The daughters of Tzalafchad came to Moshe. He had five daughters. Gives us their names. Pasuk number two, they stood before Moshe and Elazar and they said, Pasuk three, Avinu meis bamidbar. Our father died in the desert, meaning sometime over the course of these last 40 years. Vuhu lahayala basocha eda hanoadim ha'ashem baras korach. He was not part of the group that rebelled against Moshe together with Korach, which we're going to learn about but we didn't get to yet. He was not part of that group. He died of his own sin. He did not have sons, only five daughters. The law had been given about inheriting the land of Israel, inherited through sons. But what happens to us that we're five daughters and no sons? Very good question. Moshe says, hold on a minute. Let me ask Hashem. And Hashem comes back with the laws about inheritance that in a case where a a man dies with no sons but leaves daughters, the daughters all inherit equally. This is the source of inheritance laws for daughters. We'll come back to that subject later. But they say, they introduce this question by saying, our father died, but he was not part of the rebellion against Korach, 
Rather, he died of his own sin. What was his own sin? It's none of your business. What does it matter to you what his sin was? What was his own sin? I'm Rabbi Akiva. So this is what Rabbi Akiva says in the Talmud. Zutzulavchad. He was the guy. The Ish Mekoshesh ate him. It was Zulavchad. Wasn't part of Karach, but he violated Shabbos. That's what Rabbi Akiva said. Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva, the tzaddik, the, 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 one of the greatest of the greatest Rabbi Akiva. Talmud continues. Amr Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra, Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra, his younger colleague said to him, Akiva, you made a big mistake. Benkachu Benkach there are two possibilities. Either you're right or you're wrong. It is either it was Salafkhad or it was not Salafkhad. Either way, you're in trouble. You did a sin, Akiva. Because there are two sins involved with speaking negatively about another person. One is called Motsi Shemra, libel, to, to say something false, negative about somebody else. And the other is the Shon Hara, to say something negative about somebody else, which is true. That's a sin of the Shon Hara. Bad speech, evil speech. So, Rabbi Yudah ben Becerra says to the Akiva, Akiva, either way, what you did was wrong. Either you're wrong, and it was not Salafchad, and you violated the sin of libel, Motsi Shemra, or you're right. But if you're right, what gives you the authority to reveal his name? The Torah doesn't tell us his name in our Parsha. It's Lashon Hara. Why would you defame a person? We know his name Tzlafchad. Why would you pull his name through the mud and tell us something negative about him? So Akiva, either way, you're in bad shape. It's amazing to think that Akiva could have violated the sin of Lashon Hara, what was he doing? He was learning Torah. He was learning Chumash. You read the Chumash, so you ask yourself a question. The Ish, who was it? I think it was Salafkad. You understand, Salafkad lived more than a thousand years earlier. It's not like he's around and insulted. And it's a character in the Torah. How can Akiva be held responsible for just interpreting the psukim? He's just in, it's just commenting on the Pasik. How is that Lashanhara? So this is a really important lesson. And this is something that is very, very practical. And it goes like this. The Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Mer Kagan of Radin, is known to us as the person who was particularly involved with formulating and teaching the laws about Lashon Hara. Negative speech, libel, gossip, etc. And he says there's an exception. 
there's a situation where not only are you allowed to say something negative about someone else, but you're required to. And that is, and his phrase is, Lashon hara lito eles, when it is for a constructive purpose. You ask me for a job reference? You want to hire someone as a bank teller? I happen to know that they're a thief? That's not a person you should hire as a bank teller. You want to hire a person as a bank teller? I happen to know that their apartment is messy. That's not really relevant. You can be, have a messy apartment and still be a very good bank teller. So, Lashon Haral Toelis means when there is a constructive purpose that is relevant to the subject that's being discussed. If you know negative information about someone, <coughs> and if you don't reveal that negative information, someone else could come to harm, then you are required to reveal that information. There are guidelines and limits on what you can say, to whom you can say it, how you can say it. That's a complicated subject. We have to discuss that in depth. But there's a general exception to the laws of Lashon Ra when it is for a necessary constructive purpose. And I want to tell you something. In the world in general, as damaging and horrible and divisive and destructive is the sin of speaking Lashon Hara about other people, and it is, equally destructive is not speaking up when you ought to speak up. Two people are dating with the possibility of marriage, and I know something about one of them that is absolutely, would be absolutely crucial a flaw that is not known but would be absolutely unlivable to the other person and I don't speak up? I, I would be partially responsible for uh, a broken home or a, or, or, a, um, uh, or, or an even not broken but, uh, but, but uh, a, a, a bad situation. <clears throat> so therefore you have to decide is it Latoelis or is it not what Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra was saying to Rabbi Akiva is what do I need to know the Torah says a guy was violating Shabbos what, do, what does it matter to me who he was Rabbi Yudah ben Maseir is saying, there is no toeles. If there's no toeles, then you had no right to say it, even if you're correct. <laughs> the first thing people say, if you say to a person, you know, it's not right to speak Lashon Hara. First thing they'll say. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> but that's Lashon Hara. That's when it's prohibited. Unless there is some overriding constructive purpose. Otherwise, just because it's true, it's still prohibited. So I have another story to tell you. This is a great story. This is a story from a, a wonderful book called Touched by a Story. 
And it's a story that happened in a yeshiva in Gateshead, England. There were some young men who were studying in the yeshiva. I'm not going to mention their names. <laughs> it's not constructive. And uh, the boys in the yeshiva, at least at that time, were not all so completely serious. There was a Rosh HaYeshiva, the head of the yeshiva, who was a very great scholar and a very pious man. Not all the boys treated him, let's say, with the respect that he deserved. And there was a rule that um, during the time when people were supposed to be studying, they were supposed to be studying in the base medrash, in the study hall. And there were some boys who wanted to go to a different place. There was a library, a small library, and they would go in and they would lock the door and maybe they would smoke a cigarette. I'm not telling on anybody, but you know, not what they were supposed to be doing. So there are a couple of boys up in this library. They locked the door and they were maybe smoking a cigarette, but you didn't hear from me. And, they, and there's a knock at the door. And the door says, please unlock the door. I need to come into the library to get a book, to get a safer. And the boys hear the voice and they know that it's one of the other boys imitating the voice of the Roshi Yeshiva. <laughs> so they decide, since the person on the other side is trying to play a joke on them, they're going to play a joke on him, and they say, uh, sorry, you can't come into the library right now, it's busy, you can't come in. The voice on the other side says, please, I'm begging you, this is the Rosh Yeshiva, and I need a safer inside, please open the door. And the boys look at each other, they say, well, it's a really good imitation. And they say, no, forget it. No one's allowed in. And the person on the outside keeps knocking. And then they start to look at each other and ask each other, are we certain that this is really someone <laughs> imitating the Rosh Yeshiva? Or what happens if this is actually the Rosh Yeshiva? And then we're in big trouble because number one, we're not supposed to be here to begin with and number two, we've been making fun of him through the door for these last five minutes and there is no window and there is no door and there's no other way out. And they realize that they're in big trouble. They have to open the door. And they hear the voice from the other side and the voice says listen, I just need this and this safer I need this chumash, just bring me the chumash, that's all I need. And with great fear and trepidation they open the door and they see a sight that they will never forget 
for the rest of their lives. They see their Roshi Yeshiva standing in front of them with his hand out and his other hand covering his eyes. Wow. says, please hand me the Sefer. Because the Rosh Hashiva understood that as soon as they saw who it was, they were going to feel so terrible and so embarrassed that no other punishment was necessary. And if no other punishment is necessary, then there's no reason for the Rosh Hashiva to know who it was. And therefore, it would be without any toelis. And he kept his eyes closed. Now, one last point. <clears throat> Please turn to page 876. Because on page 876, it will appear that this lesson is being violated by none other than God himself. On page 874, there's a narrative at the end of the Parsha of Bullock of a terrible, terrible act of immorality that happens between a non-Jewish woman and a Jewish man, an act of immorality that occurs in public in front of the entire encampment of the Jewish people. And... Pinchas takes action in a zealous manner against this couple and stops this immoral act from happening. And then look at page 876, Pasuk number 14. Shame Ish Yisrael Hamukeh, the name of the Jewish man is Zimri, the son of Salu, Nasi base of Lishimoni, the prince of the tribe of Shimon. And next passage, Vishem Ho Yisha Hamukah Hamidyanis, Kazvi Basur, and the name of the woman. Was Kazbi, the daughter of Tzur, who was a prince of Midian, the Midianites. So let me ask you a question. What do I care what the guy's name is and the and the woman's name is? Now we're three thousand five hundred years later. What does it matter to me? Why does the Torah go out of its way? God Himself to write in the Torah, and this is the name of the man, and this is the name of the woman? What do we need to know? If you didn't tell me the name of the man who was violating Shabbos, and the Talmud gets upset with Rabbi Akiba for saying who he thinks it was, here the Torah itself tells us the name of the man and the name of the woman. So I want to share the following answer with you. The answer is based on a comment that Rashi makes, but putting it into the context of the Chavitz Chaim's protocol. Lashon hara 
To say something negative but true about another person is prohibited unless there is a constructive purpose. In the case of the Koshesh Eitzim, no constructive purpose. So even if Rabbi Kiva was right, what he said was wrong. Here there's a very important constructive purpose. Specifically based on who these people were. He was the prince of the tribe of Shimon and she was the princess of the nation of Midian. You see the prince and the princess doing something wrong? You may very well think to yourself, who am I to say anything? Who am I to start up with the aristocracy? Who am I to disagree with leaders and important people? And if I do something against them, who knows what's going to happen to me? But the Torah says, it's actually a Pasuk later on in the Torah, Lo soguru Don't be afraid of anybody. If you're right and they're wrong, be proud to proclaim what is right and what is wrong. Don't withhold responding to a person because of their stature, of course, a great person does something, the first thing you should think to yourself is, well, maybe what they did is correct. Maybe I'm not seeing it right. But if you are correct, and if someone has done something wrong, don't hide because of their stature. If a great person does something wrong, especially in a public way, it needs to be highlighted in order not to learn from that person. A person who is great in stature is a role model. A private person who no one is looking at to imitate their actions, maybe I don't need to point it out. But a person of high stature in the public eye who holds him or herself out as a role model to others and then they do something that is terrible, that needs to be criticized, that needs to be condemned so that no others learn from that behavior. In the case of the Makoshesh, it was an issue, it was a person. And that person was punished for what they did. Do I need to know who it was? I don't need to know. But in the case of Cosby, of, of Zimri and Cosby, I need to know who it was in order to appreciate what Pinchas did. Pinchas took action against wrongdoing without regard to the high station of the people who were committing that sin. A person of a higher station, a person who is a role model, a person who is in the public eye, is held to a higher standard. And that becomes an issue of to'eles. When someone has done something wrong in the public eye and they are a person of higher stature, it is necessary, in the right way, under the right circumstances, to say, don't learn from that person. Don't use that person as a role model. That action is not right, notwithstanding their high office. And therefore, in the case of Pinchas, it was necessary to tell us their names because otherwise we would not have understood this lesson about what Pinchas did. Whereas in the case of the Mekoshesh, 
it was not necessary according to Rabbi Yudhubh it was not necessary for us to know that name so being able to distinguish in the cases where there is a constructive purpose versus where there is not a constructive purpose that is what we have to be able to distinguish in order to know the difference well how do you know when to say something and when not to say something becomes very complicated. And that, in, in, in a sense, our whole parsha is about this. When can we say something about Israel? When can we not? When can we say something about another person? When can we not? It's, the, the distinctions are very fine. It's very easy to make a mistake and the mistakes are very, very serious. Well, the first answer is, if you're not sure what to say, no, no, no. If you know something negative and you're not sure what to say, ask a halakhic authority. Because in a situation where you're supposed to say it, holding it back is just as destructive as, as, as the opposite. Ask a, an objective halakhic authority. There's another guideline I'll give you. And it comes from the last story I'm going to tell you tonight. I've told this story before. It's a great story. <coughs> there is... This is a number of years ago. You may remember this. There was a, um, a man who was arrested, Demyanyuk. Mm -hmm. And he was arrested at a very, very advanced age for having killed Jews in concentration camp. And he was put on trial in Israel. And his defense attorney was a lawyer of some note whose name was Sheftel. Some people thought it was the right thing for this lawyer to defend Demyanyuk. Some people thought it was not the right thing. But the following story was told. Many, many years ago, you know, sometimes they would take a Jewish boy and draft him into the Tsar's army. To be drafted into the Tsar's army in former times meant that you were not able to live in a Jewish manner in any way. You were not able to keep kosher, you were not able to observe Shabbos, you were not able to keep mitzvot, that's it. You were separated with the Jewish, from the Jewish people, you were separated from the Torah, you were separated from mitzvot, that's it. No excuses. Young man came to his rabbi and he said, Rebbe, something terrible has happened. I've been drafted into the Tsar's army. I have to report tomorrow. As of tomorrow, I know I'll never have kosher food to eat. Am I allowed, if I can't find vegetables, if I can't find fruits, if I'm literally about to starve to death, am I allowed to eat trafe food, trafe meat? Am I allowed to eat pork if it's necessary to save my life? And the Rebbe said to him, if there's nothing else to eat and you need it to save your life, you can eat the pork. 
but don't suck the bones. <laughs> don't enjoy it. If you have to say something negative, don't enjoy it. Don't suck the bones. If you are forced that you have to say it because the circumstances are such that it is Lito Ellis and someone else would be hurt if you don't say it, maybe with halakhic guidance you have to say it. But don't suck the bones. Don't enjoy it. I wish you a good Shabbos. Shabbos, thank you.